Hello and welcome to the Armin Show podcast, science, people, creativity, learning more, and expanding our framework. Our guest today, coming from Copenhagen, normally at University of Cambridge in England, we have Cecily Treyberg. Cecily, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to have you on the program. You are in the realm of psychology and in the field of psychology. You look at things like influence, identity, interaction, judgment, beliefs, and behaviors. How did you get into the categories you are in? Why those versus other ones? Why psychology versus a different category? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I thought quite a bit about it, how I ended up in this field. I think, um, well, my first degree was in marketing and psychology. I thought I wanted to work in, you know, in a business in marketing, trying to kind of persuade people, um, market things, do like market strategy, branding, etc. Um, and I was interested in that because I was interested in human behavior and understanding like why we buy things, why we act the way we do, why we, you know, um, prefer certain products and brands, etc. But I think I quite quickly figured out that I'm not that interested in the end goal of marketing. I'm actually much more interested in understanding like the influence part and um, how we influence people. Um, and I, uh, after my, after doing a master's degree in, um, in social cognition, which was a lot more uh, focusing on biopsychology and understanding what actually goes on in the brain. Um, I kind of got a more, I guess, rounded understanding of um, how we, how our minds are, are influenced. Um, and I discovered the work of my, uh, my current supervisor, Sander Vandalinden, who looks at basically the opposite of influence, which is how to prevent influence. And I jumped right into that because I thought, what better way of using what I already know about kind of almost a form of negative influence, how we kind of persuade people to do things they don't necessarily want. How can I apply that to actually teaching people the opposite, how to resist being um, persuaded, specifically in the realm of misinformation. So that's how I ended up where I am right now. You have a superb supervisor. How much of your research is guided by your supervisor versus how much is your own direction? Um, I think I'm very lucky and fortunate to have a very hands-off supervisor. Um, I think uh, he's he's the type of supervisor who guides me when when I need to be guided, but lets me kind of run loose when I want, um, which has been really nice. Um, I think the majority of the, the studies that I've gotten to do, I have designed or kind of come up with myself and I throw everything on his table and I'm like, this is what I want to do. And he helps me kind of narrow it down and figure out how to go about it in the best way. Um, based on all his expertise. Um, so I would say it's a really good, uh, yeah, PhD student supervisor re relation um, because you really have to find the type of supervisor who um, I guess can kind of meet you where you are and see what your needs are. Some uh, supervisors are a lot more hands-on if you need them to be. I think he would be as well if I needed him to be, but I've really enjoyed kind of um, getting to, explore what it's like to be a scientist 
by also learning how to fail and kind of sometimes doing things that maybe don't turn out the best way. And because that's, that's what it's like to be a scientist. You have to learn, learn by doing. Um, yeah. We have to take some failures in. failures teach us sometimes way more than yeah. success because you just traverse through the success. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. A failure, you get all the feedback and okay, now, now you really feel it. Success, sometimes you don't feel it as much too because it just yeah. worked. So you, yeah. you didn't really pay attention. And I think uh, my, my supervisor is also quite good at, um, yeah, like uh, being, he's willing to like take a bet with some of the things that I want to want to look at um, that aren't necessarily straightforward, you know, in science, especially like in, in academia, a lot of a lot of things are only really seen as successes if you find that there is a significant effect. Um, if you find, you know, something grand and major um, and you just don't always know if you're going to find that when you try to test different hypotheses. And uh, I think he's also someone who's like willing to go not just the safe route and um, but also trying trying new things and trying to kind of, yeah, um, being being open to new methods and new theories um, and, and testing things out and see where we go. But of course, that sometimes means that you end up with uh, results that don't really show that much, um, which is also a, something something you learn from, because it's just as important to find, uh, find out what isn't true as it is to find out what is true. This is a strong point. And we can't always base things on just the grand portions, because if we just look at the little grand portions of existence, then that would mean, let's say, in a whole person's existence, only these two years really mattered. And the other yeah. 78 were just passing the time in some form, but that's not the case. They're actually yeah. united in some way. Yeah, exactly. I think also, for example, I did a, a research-based master's before I did the PhD at Cambridge as well with my with the same supervisor. And uh, in, in that, uh, I think it was a nice kind of trial PhD because I got to kind of yeah, uh, test out uh, an experiment that um, basically showed very little, <laughs> which also taught me something about uh, how to actually go about testing what you want to test um, and how you're going to kind of, yeah, uh, I guess, truly explore what you want to explore, because that's what psychology is all about. Like you want to study the mind and you want to study behavior but how do you for sure know that you are studying what you think you are studying um i think that's also part of the i guess researcher career process is that you learn you find out how you're supposed to study what you think you're studying um yeah these are important life i always connect things back to life concepts <laughs> now in the category of influence and then not being influenced they're both important in the category of causing influence where does your research more lie today is it more on causing influence or not being influenced mm -hmm. in a negative direction for example i think it's 50 50 um so but i don't look at i don't necessarily look at how individuals influence individuals but uh, I instead try to look at how the context information is presented and might influence the way we see that information. Um, so for example, how does what everyone else believe about information impact how we see information? So those people might not necessarily be kind of um, 
strategically trying to influence us, but just people talking around us, sharing their opinions, not with the intent of deceiving, deceiving us or influencing, uh, influencing us might influence us anyway. Um, same thing with uh, source characteristics, how we kind of respond differently to different sources who are trying to influence us. Not all sources are kind of directly and intentionally trying to influence us. But some source effects are stronger than others, and some source characteristics are stronger than others. And I kind of look at different characteristics in the and different um, factors in the social context of information, um, and how those factors influence how we see that information, regardless of whether someone is intentionally trying to influence us. And that's sort of one side of the coin. And I use that information to better understand how we can prevent that influence. But in order to be able to prevent it, I first need to understand how, what's going on, how it's happening in the first place, um, so that I can integrate it into these interventions that teach people how to resist those forms of influence. Does it limit influence on a person when they get the sense that it is an actual effort that the other side or the other individuals are making versus if they can't tell that it's an effort and it's just happening somewhat subconsciously. Yeah, I think so. So um, if we kind of know that someone is trying to persuade us or deceive us or influence us, uh, we're often kind of a lot more focused on what it is that they're actually saying and processing it um, maybe more deeply and more skeptically than if we aren't aware that there's kind of an intent behind. For example, um, if you just think about a feel like advertising, a good ad is one that makes you feel something and not from the beginning makes you kind of aware this person is trying to shove something down my throat. Um, but, a, but a good advertisement is essentially one that just leaves you being like, hmm, um, and, and eventually leads to you buying something or acting on that. Um, but if you from the beginning are like aware that someone is trying to persuade you, it might cause you to kind of scrutinize things a bit more and be more skeptical because we don't like to think that we are influenced by other people um, or uh, that we, we, we generally like to think that we make our judgments and have our own attitudes ourselves, that we aren't really kind of impacted that strongly by other people's efforts at changing those. Um, so I think once we become aware that someone is trying to do that, it can, it's not that it's impossible. Um, you know, sometimes we are very aware that someone is trying to influence us, but it, it does, um, I, I, I think it's, it can also sometimes be a sign of a not good influencer <laughs> when it becomes too obvious. Right. There is something to that. It's almost like we are, I saw this video recently where Jeff Bezos said that the long ago, the people, we don't want truth in a society. So the people that were just going along to get along, they lived and procreated and the, the truth tellers would maybe be clubbed to death at night. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with, let's say, an advertisement or a message. If there's too much direct truth or the unflattering nature of reality showcased in it that the person is already avoiding in their existence, like, oh, I'm not part of that, and you bring that up, 
it might be the actual thing, but now it, the person's confronted with that and that's not comfortable, too much prefrontal cortex usage. I want to head over to something else that's more pleasant or comfortable and then that's the successful persuasion. Is there something to that? Yeah, I definitely think so. And uh, I remember getting an, another question when I gave a talk on misinformation um, and, and someone in the audience asked like, oh, but do people really care about whether or not they are influenced by misinformation? Um, and I think that there is there's there's some research that shows that some people don't really care that much if they're influenced by um, misinformation, whether or not what they're sharing is accurate. Um, a lot of people care, but some people don't. But what I think is really universal is that none of us like to think that we are kind of um, influenced or persuaded um, and like our minds are changed by something that isn't true. We just like to think that we are kind of good at, at judging these things ourselves, but no one likes to think that they are susceptible to um, kind of, yeah, deceptive influence. It's like there's differentiation in how much truth the per person is concerned about coming in or sharing, but everybody agrees they don't want to look stupid or feel like they were outdone or yeah, that outpowered. They are yeah, exactly, that their minds were somehow altered without them being aware that it was happening. Mm -hmm. It's like a feeling of lack of control or lack of uh, ability that nobody, I don't know anybody that want to identify with that. Yeah, exactly, because we do like to think that we're kind of very conscious of our own judgments and beliefs, that they weren't, you know, um, subtly influenced without us knowing it. Because we, we like to think that we came to those conclusions through kind of very um, reasoned uh, arguments. With agency, and it was a Yeah, exactly. This is true. Now, you brought up misinformation. This is an important topic that I think will get way more societal discussion happening on it in the next five, five eight years, because you can maybe... In, two years, maybe shorter, you can make a video of me saying other stuff that I'm not saying actually, or videos of whatever is being edited. <laughs> mm -hmm. the, the level of misinformation will be off the charts in the next five to 10 years as compared with what we have today. Yeah. We don't want to be impacted by that. And there'll probably be ways to counter that. But what kinds of concepts will come up in people's minds as there is more misinformation? What will they have to deal with? Um, well, there are, there are a lot of things. So, I mean, misinformation has gotten worse in the last um, five, five to 10 years because of the speed of the internet and social media. So it's not that there wasn't misinformation before, but now it can be spread a lot more quickly and also created a lot more easily, right? Um, it's also become a lot easier for, um, for sources to appear credible because initially, news sites would just pop up but they would kind of appear very um homemade you know um and and uh at the same time misinformation researchers and policymakers and educationalists were were trying to say well the main thing you have to focus on is assessing a source's credibility and that will keep you safe right but now sources are becoming a lot better at and fake news sources at um deceiving users and making making them appear a lot more um credible than they actually are um obviously the same thing with ai anything can be generated deep fakes you can just you can make a video that looks like anyone now um 
which is, you know, on some aspects fun and some aspects really scary. Um, because it means that it becomes easier to, to deceive. And um, as we kind of, as misinformation researchers are trying to um, boost people's ability to kind of spot these underlying misleading strategies, um, the opposing side is also getting better at using them in more subtle ways and being kind of more discreet about um, misinformation. And I think maybe the most important thing and the most scary thing right now is that um, misinformation is even being debated as to whether or not it is actually a um, problem and who is spreading misinformation. So kind of mislabeling of true information and factual information as misinformation is also a problem because it just becomes a finger pointing game where anything we disagree with, we can just now call misinformation. And um, it it puts, uh, it, it, it makes people question um, information overall and leads to, a, can lead to a complete um, trust crisis. So now at, and then no one will know what to trust at all um and instead kind of yeah um lose we risk losing faith in science and institutions and facts in general which i think is a really scary image it is i've always been science oriented so i'm not a fan of that image does this cause as it progresses, does it cause people to either retreat back to their very direct visual local communities that they're people like, oh, it's right in front of me, I can see it? Or there has to be some sort of very reliable way to verify what is being seen, like some say through the blockchain of like having everything verified. Yeah. Okay, the person that created it put the timing on it, so it's part of the system. Yeah. Does it need to be one of those? Um, I think it's hard to say what, what it needs to be, but I think what, what definitely is happening is that people are, I guess, um, becoming more aware of how to identify where things come from. But at the same time, we see like a wave of individuals turning to alternative sources of information instead. So being like, okay, I can't, I can't trust uh, the media, I can't trust the institutions, I can't trust, I don't know where, who to trust, so I'm going to trust individuals. So instead, people are, you know, turning to, Gen Z is turning to social media, um, and not social media um, in terms of like news organizations posting on social media, but individuals sharing stories. Um, and this is becoming a lot more um, pervasive that people turn to individuals as new sources instead. So instead of, you know, relying on uh, a journalist, they rely on individuals who are kind of at the scene or um, posting as an individual. And in some ways, this is good because it kind of brings, um, I guess, uh, agency to individuals and um, allows for more kind of direct news sharing. It doesn't have to go through a medium but at the same time it also um can can be a, a really kind of dangerous issue in terms of credibility because uh there is no way of verifying what an individual is saying to the same extent it doesn't go through kind of 
classic journalistic editing and processing, which is also sometimes bad, but um, there's kind of no check point for for what information gets um, shared. So it's become kind of like a free for all news market, which increases access, but also increases misinformation. I've thought about this concept quite a bit, such that let's say there are now tens of thousands of Twitter influencers that have built a backlog of their material and they've been consistent and they have a following, but there really isn't any check on what they're doing. So if they decided to just start throwing in little pointers about something to direct people in a certain way, there's no counterpoint to it. There mm -hmm. might be some comment commenters that say something here and there, but that gets quieted in the comments, but mm -hmm. they could kind of adjust things. There's no correction point in that. What is going to be the larger check on that? Or does that mean the whole public starts to become more distant from this kind of news versus the previous kind of news that wasn't that? I, yeah, I think it's, um, I, I don't think, I, I think it's hard to, to predict what's what's going to happen. I can just kind of comment on what, what is happening. And it's reminding me a bit of um, what happened uh, with like ads, as we were talking about before, I previously studied marketing. Um, when I was studying marketing in 2013, we were learning about like trust and how people have lost faith in marketeers and advertisers and no one trusts that you know, brands and corporations are actually telling the truth, um, which and all these kind of marketing professors were saying like, oh, you know, uh, uh, so marketeers don't know what to do. Like, how do they kind of um, uh, increase trust in their branding and their ads and their marketing? Um, because people kind of see them as these like big block institutions who are just kind of not human. There's like a human element missing to it. Um, and then fast forward just uh, five years and almost all ads and 10 years, especially most, you, you won't find a company that doesn't use influencers to um, market their uh, products. Um, it's it's become like the most most used form of, of advertising, right? Like you, because people trust individuals instead um, of brands and I think kind of we see the same thing happening with with news that people have lost trust in um in journalists and institutions not everyone but many people have and and this leads them to follow individuals but at the same time um we've now seen with influencers a kind of uh a wave of the opposite where people are now not trusting influence any influencers anymore either because they're kind of learning that well, influencers have the same motivations as marketeers. They're also trying to make a profit. They're just acting as individuals instead. And that might be something that we would see in the future is that, you know, people who share fake news individually or share kind of fear mongering stories on social media as individuals might also in five, 10 years time be um uh, looked to in similar ways as as journalists and media companies are because there are always intentions behind what we we share on social media this is a very good point actually that one right there the intentions behind what people share on social media sometimes it's more obvious in some ways sometimes the salesperson even though it's very salesy at least it's very clear mm -hmm. and then whereas another person might not be doing sales 
but is trying to influence a certain rhetoric or impact uh, a few people to like them more in some way. Mm -hmm. And it's much more under the radar. And how do you discern what the person, what are ways to discern what the person is trying to get across to you actually from their end? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, deciphering someone's intentions can be, can be difficult, but, um, so, so in, in a way I don't really have a, a good, a good answer for that, but, um, I guess something that, that, uh, I recommend in general when kind of deciphering what is true and false is looking at the, the masses, like if something is being reported consistently even by individuals it is more likely to be true than if it's kind of one sole individual acting alone um and it's always possible to, to to think of or to consider whether or not someone might have ulterior motives like if you could think of a motive what would it be and if you can think of one and it sounds likely then it probably is true that that is what they're kind of intending um but but yeah, it, it it can be can be quite difficult to to decipher. Often we first find out um, when it's when it's too late or when it gets retracted. So that's another thing to be aware of is when individuals share misinformation, whether they're kind of directly sharing a false story or an exaggerated story, or they're just resharing something that's fake. There is no kind of um, risk in terms of um, anything kind of any negative consequences for them if that story turns out to be false compared to like a news agency um there's there is kind of more at stake um if you create a fake profile on social media that i mean that's another way to kind of figure out whether someone has like um negative intentions or intentions to deceive is whether or not you know the profile looks like it's false or not you know does it is it like a someone who who's kind of has a, a network of friends and seems to be like a legitimate person then there is a little bit more uh, at stake for them if they are kind of um coming up with misinformation compared to if it's just a fake profile and that one has elements of how much skin in the game you have like Nicholas Nassim Taleb's yeah. core concept. Yeah. If there is a lot there that the person would need behind them that they're backing up for what they do, or if a lot they would lose based on what they're saying, or if they say something that would... They say one way to know if it's a truth is that if they would say something that would make them look bad and they're still saying it, it's likely it's more on the truth end because who would do that to take away their elements. But... These kinds of things are signs of you're dealing with a person that's actually there mm -hmm. or a corporation or entity versus it's a made-up item with some sort of agenda behind it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think another thing to also look at is what that person has shared before. So is it like, are they kind of like a serial sharer in terms of um, uh, information? And what does the what is the kind of the overall rhetoric of the rest of the information that they share? Um for instance, I came across an individual who was sharing misinformation um, in relation to to a big uh, 
uh, attack that happened in, in Copenhagen two years ago. And this person was sharing um, kind of misinformation about what was going on during that attack, which was which was later refuted. But when you kind of evaluated what um, this person's social media profile looked like in general, there was a lot of kind of hateful rhetoric on the profile in general, um, not related to that attack in particular, but just a lot of hateful and negative, um, very polarizing content. Um, and as such, that kind of, I guess, can can lead you to think that this person might have an agenda, you know, and an, an agenda doesn't necessarily have to mean that it's fake. It just means that you have to be aware that there is an agenda um, with what they're saying, just like uh, ads can be have an agenda, but they don't necessarily have to be trying to trick you, but they're trying to persuade you. And that's something to be aware of, too. There's the element of agenda versus not so much. And then there's the element of the truthfulness and not so much. And then you have mm -hmm. to put those together. Agenda by itself doesn't have so much negativity with it. Though there is some lightness to when there's an individual that doesn't really seem to have some sort of agenda. Yeah. There's some peacefulness there. You're like, oh, okay. They're just kind of floating through the wind in a way. Yeah. So cause sometimes like uh, you, you can also have an agenda to... I guess, maintain a certain identity or online image, like you might be sharing information in general, because it's kind of, you want to use that to highlight who you are as a person. Um, and that doesn't have to be news. Um, it, it's just sometimes people like to share, share information and images on social media to kind of build their digital self. Um, and that's also a, a, an agenda it doesn't necessarily have to be um, negative. It's just, um, yeah, something you have to be aware of. This digital self, I saw something that said that you only know 2% of a person's life. So something like a small portion is the actual digital self, uh, digital self that's showcased. And then the mm -hmm. rest is conveniently left out all the life details or mundane parts or other elements. Is it does this continue, this trend that we've had in recent years where you do this 2%, you make it a thing, you leave out the other thing, whereas I think with the younger crew, Gen Z and whatnot, they like to make that 2% more like 10, 15, or 20, or 30, or 40%, or else they don't really identify with it because they've they've seen the 2% thing happen before. Does it keep going further? Do you see a trend in the way we go as far as how we present ourselves? Yeah, I guess um, people are becoming a bit more truthful on on social media uh, in general, as, as you say, particularly the younger generation. But I also do think that there is like, um, I mean, this is maybe just a, a personal analysis. I, I'm not sure whether there'd be research to back this up, but that um, it's also strategic when people share more and share more kind of negative things on social media as well um it's all about trying to present kind of the full full image but it's also strategic and in a way before we were just sharing the highs and now it's kind of become more popular to also share the lows which which does um which has the positive consequence that we kind of see more of ourselves in each other because we recognize that other people might be going through similar issues as as us but I think that there is always kind of um, either intentionally or unintentionally a kind of strategy behind sharing um, 
negative and kind of more mundane things on on social media as well um because it's all kind of part of portraying who we are um and before that who we had to be was perfect and now we have to be real but it's still something we kind of have to be um in order to be accepted on social media because now we're kind of no longer accepting the perfect image because we know that it's um uh, just simply a portrayal and not reality but at the same time i think we shouldn't um assume that the real presents itself is actually the real one either I've noticed since the beginning of the internet, there has never, from then till now, been a thing where people share every single thought and feeling they have, plus video of themselves 24 hours a day for weeks and weeks on end. That's never happened since the beginning because that was not it. It doesn't have the curated, some sort of strategy or something to it, or else that would just be your neighbor right there. Mm -hmm. It's just right there. It wouldn't have been watched. So there's like the percentage has changed over time of how much or which parts or what people want and don't want mm -hmm. it's like a it's like a wave that everybody follows along yeah if you do exactly the thing now from yeah the thing before it would have been off and if you did the thing before the thing now exactly it been off. and i remember when instagram kind of started in 2013 uh i got it as well and everyone at that time was sharing the most mundane things. Nothing was polished. Like this was pictures of people's like uh, uh, sloppy egg, egg fried rice and like, you know, really, really ugly looking food. <laughs> and everything, nothing was polished. And then it gradually became more polished, you know. Um, so I think it kind of started out as like people trying to escape Facebook where um where people's parents had, and grandparents had started coming on so trying to kind of create a new space and then people were like well what am i supposed to share well here are my shoes and here is my porridge <laughs> and gra gradually it had to become um more polished um as as it also became like a tool to kind of market yourself and not just share with them um, with your immediate social circle which it originally started as this is true the pattern switch. That's funny. The porridge. Long live the porridge. <laughs> now, let's say you're the average individual and you have your phone and you are wanting to have your day not be influenced much by outside sources except where you want to take them in. How do you do that carefully That's so that your day is your day and you're looking at what you examine how do you do that so that you don't get sucked into different funnels of uh, influence? Yeah, that, that's, um, <laughs> I guess, the million-dollar question <laughs> is how we um, avoid, avoid being influenced in general. So I think maybe the, the, the first thing I would say is that influence doesn't have to be negative. Um, it's just more negative if it's highly biased. So I think, you know, it's also it's good and it can be important to... Uh, stay updated and keep up with what's going on in the world and um, that's not necessarily uh, negative you know being reading news and paying attention to what's going on you know following different people who you who you trust and maybe who you who you like doesn't have to be a bad thing but if your um if your social media feed becomes an echo chamber 
that's when it can like be really um have have a have a much greater impact on your thoughts and your mindset um and i think maybe the biggest thing to uh, two 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 main things i would say so one is to like try to maintain a, a balanced kind of portfolio of what you are choosing to follow um on social media so that you kind of have a balance um i think uh it's unrealistic to advise people to not use their phones at all and just kind of avoid all influence because i also think that that can be negative we need to be able to rely on um new sources in general and i think to be honest maybe some people will sincerely disagree but in the field that i am in i think the worst thing you can do is tell people to do their own research which is what they will do if they aren't kind of willing to accept information in from anywhere i think we just have to be a lot better at scrutinizing where that information is coming from and the sources we rely on um so so that would be kind of my main recommendation is to try to keep it not biased and then number 2 and the second one is to be hyper aware of uh algorithms and where um where you're being taken without necessarily being wanting to be taken there so for example you know going down a youtube rabbit hole um that you haven't necessarily realized you have gone down or um you know that can happen on tiktok within literally like six swipes you might be in a tiktok rabbit hole of people spreading misinformation so i think it's just yeah uh, stopping to think sometimes whether or not you ended up where you ended up on the internet um intentionally or unintentionally and if it's unintentional then someone else is trying to influence you and probably in a negative way that's a strong point there if you ended up there and it wasn't really your plan you probably got someone else's plan placed on you in some way. Mhm. And it's That's like uh an I think another point in relation to that is that when we accept information and you kind of end up going down some rabbit hole, once you accept some information, it's going to take you down it uh like algorithms might might take you down somewhere slightly more extreme and a little bit more extreme, but it's so subtle that you don't realize that each kind of tweak in veracity of the information or extremity or the kind of whether or not the information is polarizing might be such a subtle tweak that you don't realize it's going on um and i mean the mind works in such a way that once you've or accepted kind of one piece of information you're more likely to accept the next because it's so subtle such a sub subtle difference and we don't like cognitive dis- dissonance we don't like to kind of um reassess once we've already kind of accepted something to be true then um ergo the next thing must be true as well because we don't like to think that we were just kind of silly in, in accepting the previous statement right so it can quickly the mind can kind of quickly be led led astray and nowadays this can happen just within minutes a lot of valuable points right there the multiplicative nature of the internet where you go into a thing and then that category multiplies on itself and you get more of that and then you see that and you're reminded of that and you see that and now it's like that little bit got expanded into a whole world there. That's a strong one. And then what you just said there afterwards. What was the last thing you just said there after that? Um well that that you might like uh, the cognitive dissonance like you don't like to oh, Right. That part there there are our weaknesses. Any of our potential weaknesses would be used by algorithms against so if someone has uh, ego or they have insecurity or they have 
uh what is that uh withdrawal or they had somebody uh depart from them mm-hmm. or any sort of uh, life element that impacts the person is something that the algorithm can latch on to mm-hmm. and then once it's latched on you went in the category then it multiplies it and now you're in this world that you wouldn't have been in if it was just a random assortment of content showing up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah. it's a strong one there what if a person is, do you look often more, you look more at uh, people or organizations or governments or the conceptual, what's happening behind the scenes? Which one would you say you look at the most? Um, Mostly people. Yeah. So I look at how, I guess, people influence people and especially kind of considering um multiple people at once, kind of considering that the persuasion process isn't necessarily just a unidimensional relationship between the kind of influencer and the message receiver or the communicator and the message receiver that there's so much else going on. Um, and I, I kind of try to look at the whole, the whole image of what's going on, what's everyone else doing, all the characteristics of the source, um, everything kind of going on in the receivers and um, yeah. So not so much at organizations um, themselves. But I look at news sources, um, so I guess you could say that they are organizations. But I almost consider them as like a an individual with a with several different source characteristics. Is it pretty clear whether the the individuals or groups that have the most impact online are highly strategic or not strategic at all, and just doing a lot is there something to being highly strategic is that the one that wins out clearly is there something to this um i think uh there there are two things so i mean one is being highly strategic i guess that kind of covers many different dimensions of how how to be successful in influencing others on social media um but something that works both strategically as well as unintentionally is being extreme and provocative that uh, often gets a lot of a lot of attention. Um, being willing and able to spread things that are somewhat shocking and highly emotional is also going to get you a lot of attention. And the thing is that people can do that strategically. And if you do that strategically, you can really influence a lot of people. But you can also do that unintentionally. Um, but it will kind of have the same amount of influence whether or not you intended for that influence to occur or not because our brains just love this form of um, extreme information, things that kind of um, both feed into our biases and sound shocking and alarming. That's kind of what we're drawn to um, because, uh, I mean, one one reason for that is that the brain kind of picks up on irregularities in the environment. You know, you, you, you might read like 10 things that you kind of know to be true and they kind of confirm what you think already. And it's not that shocking, but wow, you're going to stop at that that headline or that tweet or that news article or that individual sharing something that's uh, that's shocking and you are going to be more likely to believe it if it also is kind of emotional and plays into your your existing um, your existing biases whether these are um, political or or otherwise. This is a, a neat point that so if you're strategic you might do a lot of that more often on purpose and then if you're not strategic you might once in a while by happenstance cause such a reaction 
but it was just connected with your life or something you were saying and then it had the effect it has sort of the what works works concept which i was never mm-hmm. a fan of before but if it works and then if it uh you didn't plan it but it still quote works mm-hmm. it has the intended effect but uh, i guess often people are better at getting it to work if they are strategic about it like for instance um there, uh, something that requires being really strategic is having a strong, um, like, persona or profile as a source, because people really do pay a lot of attention to um, which source is actually sharing this information. I mean, people number one pay attention to what's being shared more so than the source, but um, in order to evaluate whether that's likely to be true or not. Um, if it's not totally extreme and plays into our biases, we also look at the source. And if you're able to kind of strategically hit all those points that are going to make people think, oh, this source is credible, you're going to be a lot more likely to influence people with whatever message it is you have, no matter how shocking or emotional or whatever um, neutral it might be. Um, and that can both take you know, knowledge of what makes a source uh, influential and appear to be credible, but it can also just, um, you know, take effort and time. Like, for example, building up a uh, fake troll or Twitter account that appears to be someone um, uh, highly credible takes a lot of time uh, and effort because people are now kind of better at picking up on these official cues. So if you're able to really um, play on these cues well you're going to be more successful like an example i can think of is um there was recently a a, a really prominent uh, academic and researcher that i was a big fan of for the last 10 years who uh, who started following me on twitter and i was really excited and i went to see uh, and i went to look at his profile and and, and i thought it looked legit because he had like 15,000 followers on Twitter, which I thought maybe he would have had more. I was more thinking like 40,000, but um, seemed legit, like 15,000. You wouldn't have that if you were like a fake account. But then I noticed that the name was a little bit weird. Um, There was just one letter that was off in the name and he wasn't verified. And he started writing to me on Twitter as well. Um, And then I very quickly found the real academic profile who actually had like 45,000 followers on Twitter and was verified etc and I started like playing along <laughs> with this <laughs> with this Twitter um troll uh and 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 asking them you know why they weren't verified it and that I had been a big fan of their um their work for a really long time and they started saying things like oh I just this is this profile is going to get verified soon I'm just kind of transferring over to this profile and started like trying to have a conversation um and in the end i kind of re- revealed that i knew the truth and i was like well as a misinformation researcher i'm sorry but i can't you know um continue to follow someone who's spreading misinformation and then i got blocked within you know one one second of sending that message and i, I reported the profile right but one week later it had changed to another famous person on twitter with one letter different in the name. And I kept reporting it for, I think, four four months. But it just kept being a different person, you know? Every time it got kind of, um, I guess, uh, blocked for very temporarily for um, impersonating someone else, they just, you know, changed 
their their name. And this was how they were kind of able to maintain and create such a large following because people like me who just see like the the profile for one second and think, oh, that looks real because they have so many followers, uh, just you know blindly follow, um, and it just ends up appearing to be someone credible. And uh, and this can then help them get more followers and more followers and more followers. But obviously, it requires a lot of effort and a lot of strategy. And they're then trying to, you know, uh, appear to be this person. And within, like, every 10 tweets, then insert, like, a strategic message. So, like, 9 out of 10 tweets might be something that that person would say if it's a researcher, you know, something about their research. Um, if there was also like a Bitcoin expert they were pretending to be two weeks later, it would be something about Bitcoin, you know. Um, but then every 10th tweet might be something kind of slightly political or sharing some news that is more strategic. But yes, it requires strategy and a lot of effort. You made me think of a few things here. One of them is, by the way, that's that's something that shows up. That shows up. I see it on TikTok where an individual that I follow that's a well-known person. Then I get people that follow me that have the same profile picture, almost the same name. Yeah, yeah, same yeah, name. yeah. And I'm just, I keep getting these now. Yeah. So does this, this connects with the concept I thought about before. Let's say in 2014, 15, 16, 17, a lot of prank videos happened on YouTube where they go prank people in the public. And that's not happening anymore because now the whole public has been pranked at this point and it's not the same effect as at that time so it's like the i don't want to say the consciousness but the response from the whole public has gone up to here because mm -hmm. they saw it their friends it happened to their friends or something yeah but it's a little bit more effort kind of like what you're saying here this is another example you see the person oh that's not just it's a little bit like i don't want maybe innocence gone and then more effort that is required of every mm -hmm. single person that wants to really do anything is the effort to be an upstanding or well-to-do human going up because there's so many items challenging at our humanity that were not happening before sorry can you elaborate on that question like is the effort to be a we'll say reasonable person in 2024 managing all the items that are jabbing at our minds and algorithms mm -hmm. and uh, misinformation much more mm. effortful than let's say 1980 1940 where there's way less like that's connected to us maybe we had horses yeah. or agriculture but it wasn't like our humanity was being directly impinged on repeatedly yeah i think that i think that's a really interesting question so i i, I would say in some ways yes um just because we are kind of bombarded and overloaded with information that we kind of have to pay attention to or pay attention to. Um, there are many more things we have to consider. We are much more connected than ever before. And also um, there are a lot more kind of sources of information to, um, to evaluate and a lot more of that information. We have access to more information uh, than, yeah, than we've ever, ever had. Um, whether we kind of want that information or not. So there's a lot more to kind of um, grapple with. But at the same time, because kind of uh, living standards have in general increased in a lot, uh, and at least a lot of the, um, in a lot of the weird, uh, or sorry, non-weird um, populations, uh, the weird populations have kind of increased in living standards. It means that we kind of have, 
less um, existential or less kind of, um, yeah, less worries really related to survival. Um, and now a lot more worries related to um, just kind of day-to-day -day life. And I think there's also kind of part of the part of the world that now, you know, has found something different to worry about because there is not those kind of um, worries related to whether or not we will actually kind of be able to survive physically, um, which some parts, many parts of the world are still struggling with. And they're probably not worrying about um, whether or not they're feeling stressed, for example, or um, slightly, yeah, depressed or um, thoroughly checking their information sources when it comes to um, news and politics like that. Um, but we're kind of, uh, I guess, in, in a good way, uh, we have the mental capacity to do that now because we don't have all these, um, yeah, much more existential worries that other parts of the world have. I just got an analogy or a metaphor that came to my mind. It's like some have gotten to the top of a mountain of life stability and reasonable things, but now you're at the top of the mountain and you have a different issue, like there's less oxygen, or maybe you have a great view, but you can't see some of the things on the ground level you could see before it's like you get to a certain points and then there's trade-offs to that that you weren't, weren't obvious when you were climbing the mountain because climbing the mountain looks like it's the whole goal like I, i'm up there that's the victory but there's no you look at it from a far off planet the mountain is not that high off the ground anyway it's just a little bit different but it appears to be a completely different yeah in a way in a way i would agree and but but i i almost see it more as like um i don't know if you know maslow's hierarchy of needs or yeah. hierarchy of needs yeah it's, i feel like it's a bit more like that where you know in order to be able to like have the privilege of worrying about um the things that 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 uh we worry about a it's basically a privilege to be able to worry about those things because once you, when you're kind of looking for shelter and food, uh, you're not, you know, there's no space to worry about those things. So you're kind of, you know, climbing the, climbing the, the, the hierarchy of those needs. Now there's actually, um, because you have all those needs met and satisfied already, um, it becomes something different that we worry about, but that's not to neglect the, the pervasive influence of misinformation, because I do think that some like worrying about misinformation should be a thing, especially when we are able to, because misinformation is causing a lot of the crises we see around the world that are causing people to not have what they need. Um, so it kind of goes full circle like that. In your research today or onward, what are some things you are looking at right now or would like to tackle in the upcoming time? What are important focuses of yours now and onward? Um, I think one thing I'm really interested in is um, figuring out how we can um, inoculate people against misinformation at scale. So how do we kind of make people um, better able to resist misinformation, not just at an individual level, but how can we kind of um, scale this uh, in society? Um, so. And uh, this, you know, will entail looking at different strategies, like how can, uh, can um, 
making one person more aware of what misinformation is and making one person more resistant and resilient, um, can that person be part of the spread of the of the inoculation and of um, this resistance to misinformation? Can we kind of uh, target key people to be able to spread this resistance to misinformation? Um, and how do we kind of get uh, more vulnerable populations to be willing to engage in this uh, form of intervention or kind of learning about misinformation? Because often uh, the people who uh, are willing to kind of, at this at this point in time, participate in these interventions and learn about misinformation are probably the ones who are most resilient to begin with and have an interest in knowing about it. The people we really want to reach are those who don't care and um, and and don't think they they should uh, and they need to be kind of resistant to misinformation. And those are the people we really want to target, but the ones who don't want to be um, targeted because they also see it as maybe a form of outside influence, even when you're trying to teach them how to not be influenced. <laughs> That's funny. Two strong concepts there. One of them, the, it's like a person can be a pillar of something like resilience or inoculation against misinformation or strength or consistency or discipline or whatever it is. A person can be that and then a base of people can branch off of that. That's a, a, a strong point for any individual. You can be like a pillar of that. And then the other point you bring up there of bridging the gap because like the people who are in the gym are not the people you want to guide about working out more or their mm -hmm. fitness or health. Mm -hmm. The person who's not in the gym is the person you would yeah. really want to reach and they're not at yes. their... Yeah, exactly. So if you're like um, having your like fitness membership stand in the fitness center or right next to the fitness center, yeah, you know, you're going to target those people who are already going there or who are already there. Then that's not necessarily who you want to target. But it can be, it, it, it's proving a, a difficult task. So I think that that's something I want, I, I'm trying to work on. I always think about that when I do anything, the people who are not here, there's a whole world of that. And then the people that are with you, they're actually way more similar to you than you think. You're not really competing with them. And you're, mm -hmm. not really com you're not really competing with anybody, but these are more similar to you and the people who are not participating. It's a different category of individuals. Mm -hmm. My last question to you, have there been any key people who have influenced your direction, potentially your supervisor, but maybe even earlier that uh, affected the trajectory of your life? outside individuals outside individuals mm -hmm. like a scientist or a researcher or mm. uh, maybe a distant friend or somebody that you wouldn't have expected maybe that caused the fork in the road is there anybody like that hmm oh that's a that's a very deep question to end on <laughs> um <laughs> i think uh i think well someone that really influenced me was like uh very uh or maybe I'll mention two people. So one person was my violin teacher. So I played violin since I was five and I had a really, oh, cool. I had many different, many different teachers, but one of them, he was, um, he was very influent, had, a, had a great influence on me. Um, I think he was so passionate about what he did and kind of what the effort he was willing to put into what he was doing and in kind of teaching how to do that, that it was just, uh, it inspired me to be, you know, to to be willing to put in effort to kind of um, get where you want. 
um, because he was kind of all about that. And also um, the whole like paying attention to, to detail. Um, I think as a person, I can very easily kind of rush off to the next thing um, without uh, and sometimes kind of forget to, to look and scrutinize things in the here and now. But he was really good at kind of picking out the little things and being very kind of perfectionistic. Um, and I think that that kind of taught me the value of kind of um, spending time uh getting good at the little things like the little parts of what you're trying of the, of the bigger picture and then another person was a, a teacher in my junior school who um uh, who really enforced uh, critical thinking in me and um, she was someone who kind of always encouraged us she, uh, she she taught literature social science and history and was always teaching us to be critical of whatever we were reading, even if we kind of weren't really supposed to be critical of that um, and ask critical questions and consider who's writing this, what is their purpose, you know, can we look at this from different perspectives? She wasn't someone, you know, she'd um, she'd sh show us, uh, for example, historical videos from both perspectives in terms of, let's say, like a war in order to, um, to make us realize that there's always kind of a reason for for many different sides and to be able to be more aware of what's going on uh, in in both camps and in order to understand how kind of conflict arises and be very, yeah, uh, critical of information in, in general and be willing to ask critical questions about everything and be uh, approach the world with a, a healthy amount of skepticism. <laughs> These are key points, critical, and then also having someone that you see that is bringing their energy towards something, and then, oh, I could bring energy like that towards something as well. These influences have a big impact on our future. That's why we still remember them years later. Yeah. It's quite neat. Yeah, you want to have both sides of information. If you start getting into just one, you become more like an island, and we as people are not built to become an island. Exactly. Cecily, I would like to thank you for having joined in this discussion on the program about various topics, including influence and your research and where might people find your material and what would you want them to know as like a, a closing message if you had one to all people on the whole planet? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I have a website, which is my name, CeciliaTreyberg.com, which, which has most of my research and kind of my, my profile but like a, a a take home message is maybe to go inoculate yourself against misinformation go figure out what inoculation is what it means and how to boost your own immunity to misinformation so if you just google inoculation and misinformation you can learn about how that's possible wonderful thanks thank you for joining on the show Thank you so much for having me. And we are out.